stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Well, it was certainly a boisterous weekend in the nation's capital, but it was a lot of things. Sure, there was joy. Uh, there was camaraderie. The thousands of protesters uh, on hand to send a message to the federal government, to other levels of government. Uh, but there was some ugliness. There was intolerance. There was anger, paranoia, disrespect, even some entitlement. It was a lot of things. Now, the protests are not quite at the level they were on Saturday, but there are many protesters who remain. So what's the scene today? What are these protesters hoping to accomplish? Freelance journalist and author Justin Ling has been covering it all. He had a dispatch at thedailybeast.com. You can read there much more at uh, justinling.ca. Justin, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what's the latest uh, there? We, there was some incident earlier, I understand, where uh, a police cruiser was rammed or, or crashed into. Maybe you can uh, illuminate uh, us on that a little bit more. But what's the situation there first? Yeah, so the incident earlier, it's kind of anyone's guess as to what exactly happened. I know that a ton of uh, cops were scrambled uh, to an intersection near the protest um, after a cop car was hit. It's really unclear as to whether or not that was um, you know, a mishap. Uh, one, one eyewitness said it was a case of a, of a, of a cop car accidentally rolling into a truck. Uh, another police source said it was a case of a truck ramming, I think quite gently, but ramming uh, a police car. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine as to what exactly happened. But whatever did happen, Ottawa police say they, they diffused the situation and uh, they've calmed it down and, and things have been sort of restored to normal. Uh, but I, I think if it was, in fact, uh, somebody intentionally doing this, it represents a growing frustration by some of the protesters who feel like they're being boxed in by the Ottawa police. Uh, they feel like they're being uh, sort of stranded on uh, the John A. McDonald Parkway, sort of in the west of the city. Uh, they feel like they're not being around, allowed to move around freely. Um, which I think is the point. Uh, but uh, there's a little bit growing frustration from folks who feel like uh, the cops are uh, are at odds with them. Well, and it seems as though the, the approach from Ottawa police over the weekend was to de-escalate where necessary, to let people have their say. They took a real hands-off approach for the most part, but have Ottawa police now maybe changed their approach? Not exactly. I don't think so. You know, I, I think over the weekend, the Ottawa police realized how big the crowd was, uh, realized they had to give them some space, realized that they were going to take up a big chunk of the city. So cordoned off a large part of downtown. It was also the weekend, so no one's really going to work. Uh, to the same level, you don't have uh, members of parliament or, or politicians or, or senior officials uh, moving around downtown. So I think Ottawa police were happy to give them a little more space. I talked to one parliamentary security officer who said, uh, you know, we're giving them some flexibility and uh, you know, it, it's meriting some results. And I think that is definitely the posture they had all weekend. As we come into Monday, the crowd has shrunk. Uh, some new people have showed up, but the, overall the crowd has shrunk significantly. Uh, the MPs are back. Uh, business needs to resume downtown. Traffic needs to move so that things don't completely grind to a halt. And I think Ottawa police have been uh, trying to nudge the protest into uh, some predetermined locations so life can kind of go on as, as normal. And obviously the protesters are not terribly fond of that. Uh, but I think it's a really good tactic from the Ottawa police. I mean, they're they're certainly ceding parts of the city to these protesters. Wellington Street, right in front of uh, Parliament, in particular, uh, the John A. McDonald, like I mentioned, um, they're clearly giving them their own space, but also trying to use some physical infrastructure, some 
police resources uh, to keep them off of some main arteries and to kind of keep the city moving even as the protest goes on. What kind of numbers are we hearing, both in terms of what we have left over today and, and what we saw at the peak of this on Saturday? So it's really hard to do crowd estimates here, right? You know, this is yeah. not a protest uh, that decided to coalesce around Parliament Hill all at the same time. At any given moment, you had some people on Parliament Hill, some people in a park nearby, some people wandering the streets, some people back at the hotel, some people in their trucks and their cars. So it's really, really, really hard to estimate. Um, a ton of the vehicles involved in the protest are parked in parking lots, uh, both outside and underground throughout the city. There's people in parks nearby, there's people on the Quebec side. It, it's impossible to say. What I can tell you is that um, on Saturday, as, as the protest was sort of in full swing, I did a really rough back-of-the-napkin guess that there was about 10,000 people uh, in the downtown core as part of this protest. I guarantee you today that shrunk significantly. I think we're talking about mm-hmm. thousands, maybe hundreds of cars, maybe a, maybe around 1,000 vehicles, um, maybe 100, 200 trucks, rigs properly, maybe a little more than that. So it's it's sizable, but you know I heard somebody yesterday on stage at this rally saying it was um, you know tens of thousands, maybe fifty thousand uh, vehicles. I've heard heard some people say one point four million people were heading to Ottawa for this. I I heard one uh, politician yesterday, Derek Sloan, former member of Parliament, say it was uh, the biggest rally to ever happen on Parliament Hill, one of the most important events to ever happen on Canadian soil. Obviously, that stuff is just bonkers. There's just no basis for that. There are there have been bigger protests for 420, the Marijuana Activism Day, uh, on the Hill, and for Right to Life, the anti-abortion events. They have been significantly bigger than this. This is sizable, but it's not massive. You mentioned the stage, and there were speakers. And there's that question, I guess, of, of who speaks for this movement. Uh, you know, these people don't necessarily represent everybody who was a part of this. But if we're looking for demands or if we're looking to find out what happens next, presumably it would be the same kinds of organizers and prominent figures we would look to. So who are they? Yeah, so, I mean, the organizers uh, are not exactly a secret. You can go and look at the one group that was responsible for planning the entire event. They're a group called Canada Unity. They are the ones who uh, started the fundraiser. They're the ones who planned the convoy, did the, the graphics and the designs, uh, picked route captains, uh, set the, the schedule. Canada Unity is the, the organizer of the event, so there's really no question of that. Canada Unity is started by a guy who has expressed support for the QAnon conspiracy theory. He's a guy who believes that Justin Trudeau should be arrested and tried for treason. Uh, he believes uh, the COVID-19 is a pandemic. It was planned by Bill Gates or George Soros or somewhat along those lines. Uh, and many of his helpers believe in equally kind of kooky conspiracy theories from uh, the idea that uh, the COVID-19 vaccines are incredibly dangerous, which, of course, they are not, uh, or that, uh, you know, that the January 6th insurrection was a, was a false flag operation. One of the guys involved uh, has expressed support for the idea of, the, of a white genocide happening in North America. You've had another uh, chief organizer say that uh, the National Council of Canadian Muslims is responsible for an Islamification of Canada. So these people are out there, just at the very least. Some of them are tied to white power movements. When it comes to the people in the crowd, it's not hard to walk around this crowd and find extremist symbols or find anti-vax signs, rhetoric, hats. You know, there's a slogan I was, I was spotting on clothing around the protest that says pure blood, 
pure blood is is a very offensive and bizarre way for uh, unvaccinated people to re- refer to themselves. Um, and it was actually quite funny because on stage, it actually was a great representation of the crowd because at a certain point, they ran out of speakers and invited anybody who wanted to talk to get on stage. And the people who got on stage were referring to vaccines as medical experiments, saying that they would never let the state vaccinate their children. Of course, their children probably are already vaccinated, but never mind. Uh, you know, the people who were on stage were espousing some of the most uh, anti-scientific and anti-vaccine sentiment you can imagine. So I hear people who want to describe this protest as being exclusively about vaccine mandates, but frankly, they're wrong. You even hear the organizers and the attendees say emphatically, this isn't just about the vaccine mandates anymore. This is about something much bigger. The, the protesters have planned anti-mask events to go you know, invade right. businesses without their masks on. And, and, and they're going to stay here until they say Justin Trudeau resigns from power. So this is much bigger than just vaccine mandates. Is there any kind of a, I don't know if power struggles the way to describe it? Because there's, you mentioned the Canada Unity Group, and, and they very much did organize this. Uh, they, they are the ones who drew up that memorandum of understanding, laying out the demands. There are also two individuals who set up the GoFundMe page, and the GoFundMe organizers have tried to distance themselves from the Canada Unity people. I saw one of the Canada Unity people on video saying, well, the GoFundMe people have disappeared, so I guess it's time for the big dogs to take over this whole situation. Do, do we know what's going on? There? Yeah, I mean, uh, this rally was the sort of apex of a whole bunch of different individuals, activists, and organizations under the banner of Canada Unity. The chief organizer of Canada Unity, I actually haven't seen at all over the past weekend. Uh, his Facebook has been quite quiet. He hasn't uh, been witnessed. I haven't seen his big camper, which is covered in anti-vaccine slogans. Um, so the, the chief organizer is nowhere to be seen. Um, his co-organizer equally missing in action. So it's been kind of left to two warring factions. One is this, uh, the, the people who started the GoFundMe, a woman named Tamara Litch, who used to be involved with, or sorry, still involved with the Maverick Party, and her co-organizer, BJ uh, Dichter, uh, rather, uh, who has been involved with the People's Party of Canada, um, as well as some wild anti-Muslim conspiracy theories. They have tried to distance themselves from a guy named Pat King, who's probably the most popular of all the organizers, who can't go five steps in the protest without being high-fived and uh, having selfie requests. Uh, They've tried to distance themselves from Pat King because video emerged of him saying that we'll never solve this problem without bullets. He said that he wants to stalk the homes of members of parliament, and he's opened the door to cutting off supply chains to the Capitol if they don't get their way. Tamara Litch and BJ Dichter are distancing themselves from him because GoFundMe has basically threatened to uh, seize their, their money and return it if, if things kind of go badly in the capital. So those two are trying desperately to keep the $8 million they've raised from, from donors, while Pat King is really, I think, frankly, the spiritual leader of the movement. He's incredibly popular. He has 200,000 uh, fans on Facebook. He's a very popular Telegram channel. Uh, people are following him everywhere. Uh, his live streams attra- attract tens of thousands of people. Uh, he, I think, commands the support of a ton of people in this protest in a way that the GoFundMe organizers do not. And he's still in Ottawa. Uh, I, I guess we should expect that this is going to drag out for some time yet. I've heard, listen, there's a ton of people who have left. Uh, I know that the hotel is cleared out today and yesterday. 
Uh, so I think a ton of people came up for the weekend, but are going back to their lives. I heard from some people who said, you know, I got the weekend off, so I came up here, obviously back to work on Monday. But also I heard a ton of people who say they took three weeks off work. There's a ton of people there who lost their jobs because of the vaccine mandates and are unemployed. There were people here who see this as their life's calling. I saw one sign that said, uh, you know, great battles in Canadian history. There was Juno Beach, Vimy Ridge, and then this event this weekend, which is a, a wildly offensive comparison to begin with. But nevertheless, people see this as a crusade, as a war. And they're going to stick around until they, until the war is over, frankly. So people have talked about weeks. People have talked about months. Uh, I have no idea how long this drags on for. Uh, you know, it's worth noting that a bunch of restrictions are going to be raised over the next couple of months. So, you know, their job might be uh, sort of done for them. But uh, I don't know where this ends. You know, again, these people are demanding that all vaccine mandates, all vaccine requirements, in some cases all mask mandates, all public health measures be removed entirely on every level of government. And many of them are saying they won't leave until Justin Trudeau is removed from office. Uh, evidently, that stuff is not going to happen. These demands are not going to be met. Right. So do these people stay? Do they escalate? Or do they give up and go home? I guess we'll soon find out. Uh, we mentioned your piece. It's up at thedailybeast.com. Uh, your tweets as well. Uh, people can follow you at Justin underscore Ling. Justin, really great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is author, freelance journalist Justin Ling, who is in the nation's capital, has been uh, through the weekend covering these protests, which I guess in the minds of some will continue until they get what it is thereafter. Maybe that depends on who you ask. We have got the Winter Olympics beginning later this week in Beijing, China. There have been a lot of questions as to whether we would get to this point. And I think even just in the final days before the Olympics, there's some big questions about the situation in Beijing as it pertains to COVID. Is China being forthright? about the situation in Beijing, how disruptive might this be? Already, uh, they are finding cases within this uh, whole enclosed Olympic loop system. So that could portend problems for these Olympics. Now, on top of that, there's still the unresolved questions about why China is hosting these games in the first place. Why are we giving China this platform at a time when we should be focusing on the human rights abuses that are occurring within China's borders? Why is the IOC being a party to all of this? So as we get set for these uh, Beijing Olympics to begin later this week, uh, we welcome to the program here this afternoon to talk about some of these very important issues. Uh, Jules Boykov, who's a professor and a department chair at Pacific University in Oregon, Department of Politics and Government. He's the author of several books, including No Olympians and Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, more JulesBoykov.org. Professor Boykov, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Great to be back with you. Well, as we talk about these games, let's focus on the immediate challenge here, and that's keeping COVID out of the Olympics. What, what is the situation as best we can tell in Beijing with these games a few days away? Sure. Well, COVID threw Olympic qualifying events into disarray here in the United States. For example, the figure skating trials had a huge outbreak of coronavirus. And of course, we saw the National Hockey League pull its players out of the Olympics because of COVID concerns. Mm -hmm. And as you're indicating, uh, we're already seeing cases pop up inside the so-called Olympic bubble in Beijing, that closed loop. Well over 100 cases and counting, pretty much seeing more than 30 a day these days for the last few days. Many athletes are seeing their Olympic dreams scuttled because they're testing positive for COVID. 
just before traveling to China or once they arrive at the airport there. You know, China has put forth what they're calling a zero COVID policy that, you know, it must be said, Rob, has been highly effective, if by some people's opinion, a bit draconian. I mean, since the outbreak of coronavirus, China has only seen about 6,000 deaths. You know, in the United States here, we pass that every couple of days, 6,000 deaths. And so mm-hmm. China's got their closed loop system where athletes stay inside of the Olympic zone. There are no fans. There are only a select few that are allowed to go through to the Olympic zone, and they have to pass through a rigorous testing regime. But Omicron is extraordinarily transmissible, as all your listeners will already know. And unfortunately, our vaccines and and the Chinese vaccines are not very effective against getting people to contract it. Well, and I think one of the concerns the uh, NHL had, and I know it's a concern other athletes have, is now that, you know, the athletes are in China, they're under China's quarantine policies. And and that could potentially mean if an athlete tests positive there, three weeks or more of quarantine in China. Absolutely. Human rights advocates, as well as people from the NHL, like you're saying, have essentially noted that coronavirus is a convenient alibi in a way for China that allows it to sort of ratchet up social control in ways that might look responsible and might even be responsible epidemiologically speaking, but that have the side effect of muzzling dissent even further or just stressing people out because they don't necessarily trust the authorities. So a lot of people are concerned that COVID could be a pretext for suppressing critical reporting out of Beijing from journalists who some of many of many are bringing burner phones and burner laptops, but also a pretext for suppressing critical political dissent on, on the streets yeah. of Beijing, but certainly from athletes is a possibility as well. Well, that's something to worry about. I mean, you know, it's China's made it pretty clear they're not going to tolerate, you know, political controversy or athletes making controversial political statements. But China's threshold for what is controversial might not be the same as as our threshold in Canada or the United States for what's controversial. What what is the risk facing athletes uh, at these games in terms of what they might say? You're starting in the right place in the sense that Chinese criminal law is extraordinarily capacious, meaning you could do things in China that wouldn't seem like a big deal in Canada or the United States that are a big deal, in fact, illegal there that could be considered separatist, act- uh, separatist activity. So if one were to speak out about the situation in Xinjiang province involving Uyghur Muslims that are essentially living in open-air prisons uh, held together by intense surveillance, and if you were to speak out about that, you could be considered breaking the law in China, the, the criminal code there. That's a serious concern for athletes. And so we have numerous groups of athletes, for example, the one called Global Athlete, which is a progressive startup of athletes from around the world. Former Olympians are involved in it. They're actually advising the athletes that they work with to not speak out once they get to Beijing. And we've heard numerous Olympians saying that they would have liked to have said something but are are not going to. They're going to wait until they get home. And I think, you know, your lead-in got the point exactly right, Rob, which is it is the International Olympic Committee that put these athletes in this situation. The, The IOC knew full well when it handed the Olympics to China in 2015 that it was a human rights nightmare. And in fact, the promises that they gave around the 2008 Summer Olympics were never really followed through. So I think a lot of the criticism actually should probably be directed at the International Olympic Committee. Well, it's the thing, and I'm sure there are people who would say, I mean, surely the IOC is going to stand up for athletes, but I'm not sure what they're they're basing that on. I mean, you know, the, the way that the IOC has, has basically towed 
you know, the Chinese government's line on so many issues, whether it's uh, Hong Kong or Uyghur Muslims or even the situation with tennis star uh, Peng Shui, uh, the IOC has gone out of its way. They've bent over backwards to keep Beijing happy. Absolutely. You know, I interviewed a two-time Olympian from the United States the other day, and he said almost the exact same thing to me, that the Peng Shui situation, the Chinese tennis player who put forth serious, incredible allegations of sexual assault against a higher-up in China, and then the IOC came along and said they had a 30-minute video conversation and everything was fine with her. Well, of course, anybody listening would know that if you just had a 30-minute video conversation with somebody, that would be no way of really knowing somebody's well-being. But the message was clear, as you're indicating, Rob, to athletes, which is the IOC doesn't necessarily have your back. They didn't have Peng Shui's back. And if you speak out in Beijing, they might not have your back either. It's interesting. You reposted uh, on, on your social media feed a debate you did last year with uh, Dick Pound, who's a Canadian, of course, a prominent IOC member. And it was it was interesting to to hear his argument that we shouldn't talk about all of these things because the Olympics are apolitical, that none of this is political. But how is that possible? How can we possibly separate politics from an Olympics being held in Beijing? Hmm. That is a great question, and the truth of the matter is people from the International Olympic Committee like to say that the Olympics are not political, but again, anybody who thinks about it for even a few seconds realizes that they totally are. I mean, from the host city that is selected, despite the things that happen there that clash with the principles of the Olympic Charter, to the fact that athletes walk in by country, thereby stoking political nationalism. I mean, Rob, we could have all the bobsledders from around the world walk in at the opening ceremony. Instead, it's organized by the International Olympic Committee by country, thereby getting people pumped up for their nationalistic fervor. And so, I mean, you just time and again, there's so many examples from the beginning of the Olympics all the way through the current moment when the International Olympic Committee is engaged in politics. It's just a particular kind of politics that people like Dick Pound and and others at the IOC don't like. And that tends to be a progressive politics where people are standing up for athlete rights and for freedom around the world. Those are the kind of things that they want people to stay away from. But I'll tell you what, for your listeners who hear somebody say that the Olympics aren't political, I urge them to look a little bit further behind the scenes and figure out if that person's actually making their money off the Olympics. Because time and again, those who claim the Olympics are apolitical are actually milking the Olympic machine with both hands. Now, you know, the, the IOC has kind of stumbled itself into a weird situation where we know the locations uh, of the next uh, several uh, Olympic Games, both winter and summer. And for now, we, we don't see autocratic regimes hosting these games. But I, I don't know that that necessarily, you know, erases the, the impact of what these games are, are going to have. What, what do you see as potentially, you know, the lasting impact of, of these Beijing Olympics? Well, critics of the Olympics have long derided the International Olympic Committee's lack of democratic practice. And it's not just because they handed the Olympics to Beijing, which is, you know, doesn't have the same kind of democratic freedoms as we see in Canada, for example. It's also that when you give the Olympics to a place like Paris or Los Angeles, it actually has the effect of making those places more authoritarian and less democratic. The International Olympic Committee has been receiving this uh, this kind of criticism for quite a long time now, Rob, and yet they've moved in the absolutely opposite direction. On one hand, the IOC likes to say how great and wonderful and big of a deal these events are when you host them. 
On the other hand, they say you don't really need to have the public weigh in on it. We shouldn't necessarily have a democratic referendum. And we saw between 2013 and 2018 numerous cities, around a dozen of them around the world, that when given the chance to weigh in in the democratic situation, they said no thanks to the Olympic Games. And instead of of listening to that, the International Olympic Committee is now giving out the Olympics some 12 years in advance, like they just did with the Brisbane Olympics in 2032 in Australia, long before you can have any kind of serious public discussion uh, around these kind of the, the games and whether they should be funded by the public. And so it's been kind of disconcerting for people who care about the Olympic Games and also care about democracy to see the direction, the very authoritarian direction that the International Olympic Committee has gone in recent years. But that's what we're witnessing today. We'll see it all plays out in the uh, weeks ahead. Professor Boykoff, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the perspective on this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Jules Boykoff, uh, author and activist, uh, professor as well, mentioned uh, in uh, Pacific University in Oregon. He's written several books on the Olympics and the IOC and obviously has some concerns, as I think a lot of people do, about what's happening in Beijing around these Olympics and the message this all sends. The Olympics are not apolitical. I, I think, you know, and as Jules Boykoff has written, I think, you know, this whole situation really demolishes that argument. We're sending a lot of Canadian athletes there, and I, I hope they are able to stay well and stay safe, both in terms of COVID, but also in terms of any kind of uh, repercussion or any sort of perceived uh, wrongdoing by the Chinese government. And welcome back. Rob Ridge with you. As many of you can attest to probably firsthand, Mexican resorts are a very popular destination. Uh, for Canadian tourists. And for the most part, Mexican resorts remain a safe place for Canadians to vacation. But there are certainly parts of Mexico that are going through some upheaval. And obviously, cartels and cartel violence has caused a lot of problems in that country. And it has spilled over into some areas, like the Mayan Riviera. Very popular for Canadian American tourists, uh, seeing more of this uh, criminal activity and, and violence. Now, we had a situation just over a week ago at uh, the Hotel X Carré, which is a pretty popular resort, where three Canadians were targeted and shot, uh, two of whom died. And it was pretty shocking, obviously, the idea that, uh, you know, Canadians vacationing in Mexico would be caught up in this violence. Now, according to authorities, though, these two individuals who died were themselves involved in criminal activity. Uh, police have charged uh, a Mexican kidnapper and a Canadian woman who they say set the two men up to be murdered. So police say they are involved in organized crime, they were involved in weapons and drug trafficking, and that there was some motivation here uh, around debts, debts arising from transnational illegal activities according to one state prosecutor in Mexico. So what does this tell us about, you know, the cartel and the gang violence we're seeing in Mexico and how it's spilling over into some of these popular areas? Well, joining us to talk more about it is someone who's been following this story and has written extensively about gang and cartel violence in Mexico, is working on a book right now, Emmanuel Gallardo is a journalist uh, specializing in the Mexican cartels, uh, working out of Canada right now and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Emmanuel, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello, Rob. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, the situation with these two Canadians and what happened at the Hotel Excaray—it's—it's it's taken some some interesting turns. What what do we know at this point, or what have you been hearing about this case? 
Okay, at this point, the Attorney General of the State of Quintana Roo, Oscar Montes de Oca, confirmed yesterday that the Mexican Christian Art and the Canadian New Tea, the two uh, persons that were arrested, uh, they were linked to a judicial process for their probable participation in the assassination of Robert James Dean and Thomas uh, Sherukara, the two Canadians from Toronto that were killed at the Escadet Resort in the Minor Riviera on January the 21st, as you said. Now, the Attorney General said also that uh, it's going to be a complementary investigation that is going to take uh, up to three months. During this time, the two defendants and the public prosecutor can provide evidence in order to determine if they are going to be officially accused and then start a new process, a trial. It, it, it certainly seems at this point that these two were targeted, but do we know much more about what was going on here or, or why they would have been targeted? Well, uh, what the state prosecutor says is because that based on the investigation that they are doing right now, uh, they said that the attack was planned here in Canada, that uh, they hired uh, Mexican hitmen to do it. And there's something else that happened just two days ago. Another Canadian was arrested now in Mexico City with 69 kilos of cocaine. It was uh, a 26-year-old. His name is Hadi uh, Jones from Toronto as well. Uh, he was identified with that name by the Mexican police. So... Uh, the Canadian was heading to the city of Toluca in the state of Mexico, where another criminal group operates, a different group than the one that operates in the Mayan Riviera. So, yes, so there's there's a problem here with uh, uh, Canadian uh, criminals that are dealing with Mexican criminals. And this is becoming uh, like something very popular and it's dangerous, as you can see. So when we talk about Mexican criminals in this context, and I mean, we, are we talking about the cartels? Yeah, the uh, organized crime. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because, uh, you know, the, the word cartel, it's pretty much like the, the narrative of the cartel, a big institution that operates. But now we're talking about gangs that use the name of it, uh, you know, a big uh, criminal organization to operate. But But, yeah, we're talking about that. I mean criminal organizations that are big, that are dangerous, and that operates in Mexico, the U.S., and Canada as well. Now, Playa del Carmen is a, a very popular area. This whole Mayan Riviera area yes. has, has been a very popular area for tourists. But but what has changed in, in this part of Mexico with regard to some of this criminal activity? Well, the problem is the intense corruption in the Mexican judicial system. We're talking about that it's more than 95% of impunity. There are some states in Mexico, like the state of Morelos, that has almost 100% of impunity. Okay, so just imagine, people are vulnerable. In this case, in the Maya Riviera, there's a high percentage. It's actually a crisis of extortions. We're talking about that more than 700 uh, businesses in the Playa del Carmen Fifth Avenue, it's just 30, 45 minutes away from Escaret. All of them are being extorted by criminal groups. We're talking about three different criminal groups that operate in that area. Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, Cartel de Sinaloa, and a local group, which is Los Pelones. 
So yes, it's it's a lot of uh, more going on behind this news, and we cannot know more sometimes because the media, the journalists, reporters, are threatened by the criminal organization. So it's very difficult for the people there to understand that phenomena from its roots, not only to report about dead people or something like that, yeah, but what it's behind, and that it's also the problem. Well, I think there's always been this perception that some of these tourist resorts, you know, that they were going to be left alone or that they were off limits or that the, the federal government of Mexico would ensure that, you know, the tourism industry wasn't disrupted or tourists weren't scared Correct. away. But is, yeah. is that changing? Uh, no. Actually, I okay. spoke with a journalist and a person that works in a resort just three days ago in order to have a better idea of what's going on. And no, they told me, no, we are not waiting for uh, people to come over with guns or something like that. No, that's not the point. I mean, sadly, this happened because it was something that was uh, targeted. It was a specific target. Actually, it was only one person based on the investigation that was uh, the target was uh, Robert James Dean. But uh, he was with other three and all of them got shot. So. If Canadians want to go to Mexico to visit the resort and have a regular holiday, I mean, you can go. You're going to enjoy the beauty of the country and, you know, mm -hmm. all what it has to offer. But we have to consider that we have two parallel worlds here. One world is for the tourist families that go and have fun. But the other world, it's the criminal world that has a presence in the whole region. And guys, uh, people that go to, uh, to the Mayan Riviera to look for something else, but not just the regular vacation with your family. If you want to go to, you know, to get cocaine, to get drugs, or to find another kind of, you know, amusement, you're risking your life. Yeah. Well, Manuel, we'll leave it there for now. As mentioned, uh, you're working on a book on, uh, you know, the cartel violence in Mexico. I look forward to speaking with you once yeah. that's uh, done. But certainly appreciate your perspective on this story here today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And I wish you had everybody a great day. All right, you as well. Uh, there you go. That's uh, independent journalist Emmanuel Gallardo, uh, specializing in the Mexican cartel violence, working on a book right now about the inner workings of the cartels and some of the explosion of violence we've seen uh, more recently in Mexico. So uh, some perspective on what happened at the Hotel Excare in um, Playa del Carmen. So three Canadians targeted, two were, were killed. The other did survive. And so we're learning more about what was going on here. Clearly some deep criminal connections is what we're hearing from, from Mexican prosecutors. But that they would have this attack, organize this hit at a popular tourist resort feels like, you know, crossing a line, I guess. If that's the way to put it, because of the perception that this was all off limits. So interesting story. But as Emmanuel says, at the end of the day, this isn't something that the Canadians should fear, that they're going to be targets of violence if they vacation in Mexico. But it is a reminder of kind of these two Mexicos that exist, right? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.